0: Greetings listeners and learners, you are now tuned into to The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, a podcast docu-series in which we traverse across time to explore the socio-historical, political, and professional experiences of educators of color. I am your host and co-learner, Brandon White, English Language Arts Specialist for Unbound Ed, where we seek to serve students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity, instruction, content, and standards. In this episode, we will continue our exploration of the undertold contemporary experiences that educators of color must navigate as a result of this nation's past and present. Throughout the episode, we'll be attending to two of Unbounded's five charges by talking about race systematically and examining bias and its role in our work and learning. I hope the reflections in this episode and the discussion questions available at the end provide fuel for meaningful, necessary, and courageous conversations that you can have about how teaching and learning have evolved in this racialized country. If you're just tuning in, I encourage you to listen to part one of this episode and the previous episodes which explore the experiences of educators of color before, during, and right after chattel slavery, continuing into the Jim Crow era, U.S. expansion, and the impacts of the Brown v. Board decision. Last episode, we shouted out Sonia Douglas Horsford's concept of the disintegration of schools that took place as a result of the backlash and loopholes that followed the Brown v. Board court decisions, and we began exploring the present-day impact that this had on educators of color, which too often entails a disintegration of bodies, a disintegration of professional learning experiences, and a disintegration of heritages. These forms of disintegration, as John B. King cited in the previous episode, often act as invisible taxes that burden educators of color in manners that systematically keep their numbers low and their instructional impact minimal. Nashville school board member Jeannie Pupa Walker further elaborates on these taxes and their impact on teaching and learning. Once they're in
1: a school, often they report feeling racially isolated. That was certainly my experience as a teacher, Latino teacher in Seattle Public Schools and in Nashville, where often the only bilingual adult, perhaps besides maybe a translator. So they, um not only are they isolated in that there are not other teachers with their background, but then there's not, um then there's an expe- extra expectation that you are doing sort of uh, this, what we call sometimes the teacher tax, the bilingual teacher tax, where you're asked to translate, you're asked to take on Um, and mentor students, Latino students, you're asked to take on programs or or different things on behalf of Latino students, which typically is fine, but I think that it then distracts maybe school leaders from offering other kinds of leadership opportunities for Latino teachers beyond just sort of the cultural piece. So are we offering them um, department head positions? Are we offering them team lead positions? Are we putting them in a pipeline to become school leaders? Or are we just seeing them merely as sort of a bridge to a community and nothing more. And so sometimes that isolation in the school, it creates a a much, they have a much higher profile in through their racial identity than they would otherwise. And so that uh, Latino teachers will report that they feel isolated at times in that way. And then the other one is that they um, often feel like they don't, especially if they're isolated, don't have the authority or the power or the or whatever that is standing, to push back on issues, um, policies, practices, curriculum that might be harmful to Latino students in their building, or to try to celebrate or promote, whether it's Hispanic Heritage Month or other kinds of things in their building, curriculum, coursework, that might celebrate Latino culture and heritage and accomplishments. They often feel like they are the lone voice on those issues, and that can be really draining and really tiring.
0: Professor Victoria Maria McDonald touches base on the historical context that these dynamics were born out of.
2: I think Anglo communities whose parents, grand, great-grandparents came from Ireland or from Germany, when it comes to language and teachers, um, they don't understand. They're like, oh, why, you know, why there? So I hear Spanish in the classroom? Why is that teacher speaking Spanish to another Spanish, to a child, and my child doesn't know Spanish? the language uh, discrimination and what we call linguicism against Latinx teachers can be quite strong. And so you have, I've had uh, students from teachers who I mentor, and they've had white parents complain to the principal being shown, and this came out in an education trust study, like I don't think that teacher is as qualified. I want her moved to a white teacher's classroom. Um gee, you know, if that person has a lot of people understand that even if you're born in the United States, a third or more of all children in English language learning classes in you know, the first, second grade actually were born in this country because their parents were speaking Spanish at home. And some of them have accents even as adults. And, again, you have this bias. Oh, you have an accent, so you must not be smart. You you have an accent, so you're not as capable. And so Latinx teachers constantly have to be proving, they feel and report, they have to be proving themselves that they're qualified. At the same time, they're being exploited in many schools um, because where you have communities of new Latinos, rather than hire these paraprofessional liaisons, like the SATs in the old days, they're having those teachers be the one to translate and do all the work required in addition to their job of working with the Latino parents. And so that takes away from their preparation time. On the other hand, you do have the sort of very positive role that they play, and I think that's very satisfying, of helping Students who were like themselves, who confronted some areas and classrooms where they were the only smart one, where they're the only talented one, and they can continue to affirm that student like they do all students, but sometimes they're accused of bias. Oh, you like the Latino students more, or Are you, you know, so then there's a delicate sort of dancing around um, that they have to do to not have parents complain that they're biased towards this, or they spoke a Spanish word but they know how important they are as role models and somebody culturally congruent who can also motivate them. So I think that the areas that differ for Latinx teachers um, from other teachers of color is around that language culture and citizenship issues too.
0: Tragically, this limited authority to push back was only amplified by the anti-immigration sentiments that were stoked during the Trump administration. Pupa Walker continues to explain how current national politics combined with state politics and community sentiments in a way that oppressed meaningful teaching and learning in schools.
1: In this particular climate in this country today, with the current uh, president and uh, the rhetoric around immigrants, around immigration, certainly around people of color. Students feel that, uh, experience that, internalize that, teachers internalize that. And as a result, I think there, became, you know, we've seen this in Tennessee for sure. There is a resistance to drawing attention to issues around diversity, celebrating heritage and diversity. I think people feel like they equate, for example, Latino heritage and culture with the issue of immigration and illegal immigration which is you know, obviously not the case. The vast majority of Latinos in this country were born here. Many have been here for many, many generations. And so sometimes there's a resistance to, um, for example, bilingual ed. Tennessee is an English-only state. There's legislation that does not allow bilingual education to occur in schools in Tennessee. And so um, sometimes there's resistance to teaching native language courses to native speakers, for example, or there's resistance to certain kinds of curriculum being put forward because of this sort of general fear around issues related to immigration and Latino students. Um, And that hesitancy uh, and that sort of reluctance and fear, you know, then that trickles down into the classroom where teachers don't feel like it's safe for them to celebrate and talk about poetry and art and all, all of the many things that sort of Latino culture brings to the education process. And that hesitancy is really hard. And so then Latino teachers have to step into that gap and and sort of take some risks to say, hey, we want to do this kind of sort of assembly or we want to create this kind of, you know, mural or or artwork or some kind of um, activity or club or program um, and not – and I always have to feel like they're making sure it's not seen as exclusive or it's not seen as um, celebrating one culture over another – um, so that kind of sensitivity is just baked into anything I think that teachers have to you know, keep, in their, keep in mind. Like if I'm going to go ahead and promote this activity or, or whatever it is, they have to be ready for any pushback. And that's just really hard. That's a hard place to be.
0: You know, midway through my career as a classroom teacher, the term school to prison pipeline became a very popular way to describe how black and brown students experience inequitable teaching quality and discipline which patternizes low expectations and criminal treatment, decreasing their success in school and increasing their likelihood to be incarcerated. Never had I thought about a potential school to prison to deportation pipeline that impacts ethnically and linguistically diverse students of color, future educators of color, and current educators of color. Poopo Walker breaks it down. I think,
1: you know, one is creating an awareness, having an awareness of sort of as much as possible knowing your students where they are what their status is and how to make sure that they have the resources and information necessary to be safe right but what we do see is that um, this sort of deportation uh scenario is real in uh, schools in that or, or the, the the perception that it's real in schools for parents and for students in tennessee we had a really dangerous law sanctuary city bill passed last year which basically says that any police officer on any school campus in the state of tennessee can become an immigration enforcer so a school resource officer could if a family walks into a school to get their child or go to an event and they don't have an id and they and the police officer wants to question them they could call the sheriff and have them picked up right um just and that's basic straight up profiling And so that is a real fear that will impact parent engagement in the school, but also we know that schools cannot and do not ask for immigration status when students enroll in school, but we know that if students are 17 years old, 18 years old, commit a crime, get picked up, taken to juvenile, or they're arrested for whatever reason, um, and they enter into this pipeline, it's a very real possibility once they're 18 that they could move into a deportation uh, scenario. And so that's that's not good, right? That's really dangerous for our kids. And schools don't understand what their rights are in protecting student information, not allowing immigration enforcement to the school. There's all kinds of longstanding uh, rights that parents have, that students have, that schools have, that they're not aware of, right? And so it's helping, and I think Latinx teachers can and have helped share that information on what's allowable, what's not allowable. But still, the fear is real that, um Any engagement with the police could get you in trouble. And so another example of that is truancy, right? If a student is truant after so many absences, then there's home visits, and then uh, by truancy officers, and at some point, the police get involved if a student is really truant. And that is really a dangerous scenario for undocumented parents. And so that's why you often see high rates of attendance by Latino students. Certainly, that's what we've seen in Tennessee. Latino students have the lowest rate of chronic absenteeism in the state. And I think it's related to this fact of we just don't want to get on the radar. We just don't want to be uh, in, in entering into trouble. And I also think there's a narrative at home. It's like we're going to work and you're going to school and that's what we do every single day. But there's certainly a fear, I think, of engaging with um, the law. With, with, you know, and, and, and so you just minimize any chance of that happening. And that includes our own truancy as well. So that's a real fear. That's a real deal.
0: That has to be the most tragic thing I've heard all week. I'm so happy that we're having this conversation and that um, more exposure will happen to this because it's amazing, like how I, I can go about my entire career and and not and not have to deal with this at the depth that you just described. The fact mm-hmm. that there, mm-hmm. you know, that that S, SROs are deputized as ice. You yep. know, to report to ICE is just the craziest thing I've heard.
1: Yep. Yep. And also school and university campus police as well, right? Wow. Uh, so it's just crazy. Now, that you know, they will tell you publicly we're business as usual. We're not we're not doing that. But it doesn't matter. The Sort of the law is set, right? And there will be police officers, and there are. And we see it all the time in districts across the state that will harass families and threaten families and say, don't come back to campus unless you can show an uh, an ID, right?
0: In today's political context, so much of the stability of the school-to-prison-to-deportation pipeline can depend on the political support that keeps DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, an intact immigration policy. 20,000 educators became educators through the DACA program, devoting themselves to building the next generation of thinkers, doers, and innovators. Victoria Maria McDonald, professor and author of Latino Education in the United States, shares how DACA tensions mix with the other taxes of being a Latinx educator.
2: So I think that the areas that differ for Latinx teachers um, from other teachers of color is around that language, culture, and citizenship issues too, because especially now in this time of anti-immigrant especially latinos a lot of questioning that comes out of ignorance well are those students you know allowed to be here is that latinx teacher you know is she documented where did she come from and there are uh, latinx teachers who are daca uh, ones and who again have to work in silence and fear even if they're certified to work in this country um, because of the current hostile policies and ideologies going on in this country. So it's, again, and we're going to talk at the higher education level also. So uh, professors who are of Latino background are like at 1% in the whole country. And each rank of, uh, you know, professor, associate professor, Latino you know, assistant, it goes down. So again, we're talking very small margins have reached up to the highest point.
0: While not always identical, some of these challenges with Black and Brown educators also intersect with challenges Indigenous educators face. Arizona State University professor and Indigenous student advocate Amanda Tatine describes the invisible taxes Indigenous educators often must pay. I feel
3: like I I was um, a teacher in middle school. I taught seventh grade middle school math, and then I taught high school math as well in an urban setting and the first school that I taught was actually back at my home on Navajo Nation so I'm providing that context because at both places I predominantly taught Native people, Native students but the teachers that I worked with even on the Navajo were predominantly non-Native and so one of the struggles that I was at that time, and that's more something I hear amongst other Native teachers, is this idea of being invisible, which is a larger systemic issue across the nation, this idea. Rebecca Nagel, who is Cherokee, wrote a piece in Team Vogue titled, Invisibility as a Modern Form of Racism, which really speaks to... To the lack of awareness and the ongoing erasure of Indigenous peoples experiences in society and in, and then in schooling. So oftentimes, in my work as an educator and teacher, I, um, once the one when, when you're the the minority in the school setting. Yeah, either the struggles you face is you're like the knowledge holder of everything Indigenous, so you're the, the, the the go-to for um, information about Native people, not only with terms of the content that you're potentially will provide support to other teachers on the content for those who are interested in that, but also the issues of dealing with Native issues for students, understanding the Native problems that's happening. You know, there's you're know, like the panacea of all things Indian Native in the school setting, which as a new as as a teacher, that can be you know you're you're already concerned with trying to teach in your classroom, and then with added added roles and responsibilities of having to also educate the larger school setting or educate all the administrators. So I feel like there's a sort of constant reeducate educating educating. But what's really challenging is educating. We all know as educators that's our job to educate. But what's challenging is that when you're a native in these schools what's different is you're constantly educated on basic information It's like you're constantly educated on native 101 <laughs> and after years and years that can get wearisome. particularly because if you're an educator we all want to grow in our development and understanding the way which we see the world. We all aspire to learn and cultivate it but what's challenging what I find is but when you're constantly educating at a basic level to people because of their lack of understanding. You're constantly at Native one-on-one. And able, your capability of wanting to explore and expand your knowledge base is limited. So whiteness limits your ability to grow because you're constantly having to educate at a, at a basic level. And I feel like that's something that um, several of us Native people have been speaking more about. Um, because we're we're asked and tasked in different ways to educate people on native people, but it's really at a surface level of understanding of how many tribes there are these are the culture things what is tribal sovereignty you know things like that where we're at then our time is on those pieces which then you know what about exploring and addressing really bigger issues so I think that that is um, a challenge that that as Native people, that many of us may face is just connected to invisibility and the feelings and and being tapped. There are other reasons, but that's what's been pressing on my mind a lot. I think too, the other part is this idea or this understanding that we're connected to the struggle, meaning that we, I think, oftentimes you, when you have a teacher and you're educated, we we assume that they have made it out (laughs) you know whatever that means but they have acquired uh, a degree and so they're they're not connected to still what's happening within their families and so it's again it's like feeling vulnerable on whether or not you are able to share the challenges that you're facing with non-native educators who may not know your struggle and so and and so then feeling then feeling even more alone in those spaces where you're dealing with things not only in your classroom but in your family and home life because you're still connected to that struggle that's happening and sometimes not having someone who you can relate to or you can feel confidence and the trust in in speaking to those among those issues, so I think that too is is a, is connected to this idea of vulnerability as Many times, many people don't know about your life and the experiences that you have, and do you want to put the effort to open up to someone, but then know that you'll have to educate them on on their lack of not knowing, and that that creates a lot of labor.
0: Hearing Professor Tatine's experiences with invisibility made me think about the spectrum of visibility our racist society, and in this case, our education system, has to offer. It ranges from the invisibility that indigenous, Asian, and Latinx communities often testify to to the hypervisibility or false visibility that some Latinx communities and black communities often testify to. No matter where you land in this spectrum, none of it is true sight. And all of it adds to our invisible taxes. Now we've explored some of the national and state policies that can contribute to this intersectional experience of dealing with these invisible taxes, but Professor Emden submits that other institutions play a role in keeping these dynamics alive as well.
4: Here's my frustration with the larger system of education, is that there, is, there are practices that people put in place that directly impact uh, Black teachers and Black and brown teachers, and they don't match any of the policy work that's being done on a larger level. So we know that black teachers are overwhelmingly being charged with doing all this extra work revolving around the social emotional um, learning of young people or even like the financial sustenance of young people. Like a lot of black educators are spending their own money out their own pockets to make sure kids eat. Mm-hmm. People know this is happening, but they don't create any structures to support that. And so the inequities abound when you're placed in a position of having extra authority, but there's no institutional structure to support you being able to do that. So unions don't address it. Districts don't address it. School leaders, for the most part, don't address it. And it's just our charge. And I, it's unfair, it's unfortunate. And I think that it can be addressed, but they first of all it has to be a recognition that it's there. And here's where folks use our love for our students as a way to keep us in a position where we are robbing ourselves of what we need for our own sustenance, right? Folks know that we love our babies, so they put the extra charge on us. And we have this idea or this notion now, we should just be humble and take it. You know, Humility has been used as a way to ensure that folks don't get what they deserve. So there's a narrative of like, you know, just be humble, don't say nothing. If they give you extra work, just do it. You know, just do it because the white folks want you to do it. And so we we take on all this extra challenge, but there's no infrastructure to support us in being able to do it. And in, in that process, we rob ourselves of the ability to be able to be whole. And when we're not whole, then we can't make students whole. And so then it becomes this sort of the cycle of, of oppression and the cycle of dysfunction that's based on these larger structures of not giving us the resources that we need and us believing that we can't speak up for what we need for young folks because we have to be humble.
0: Professor Emden also illustrates the role teacher education programs play in maintaining internalized oppression and miseducation of educators of color. These cats are
4: running teacher education programs, utilizing the language of cultural re- relevance and equity to teach you to have a bias against young folks of color who are like you. You know, Dead Prez had this track, day schools, I know you, you probably know the song, and you know, he says, schools are like a 12-step 12 12, 12 brainwash class. If, if schools are a 12-step brainwash class, schools of education and graduate school are like, uh, uh, I mean, uh, doubling and tripling down on a brainwash classing. Literally, you're going in there with a training that says, these kids are bad, these kids are problematic, here's what you need to be able to do to be able to deal with them or avoid them. I mean, it's, it, and so you, you come out of your master's degree program armed with curriculum and standards, but armed with a perception of young folks of color that they're inherently problematic. And so, you know, know, schools brainwash us to think about the worst in young folks first. No one teaches you to look at the gifts of young folks. We teach you to look at what is a problem about them. And so, this deficit lens is part of the currency of graduate schools of education that brainwash teachers into believing that teaching in urban schools is going to be a bad problem. Maybe, Maybe we have larger... Teaching recruitment narratives that are around, you know, wouldn't you like to teach in an urban neighborhood and give back to those really poor, broken, downtrodden kids of color? So even in the recruitment of educators is a narrative that looks disparagingly at young folks of color. Um, And that becomes a problem. So I think it's important for us to say, like we're all young folks of color from the hip hop generation. that's first and foremost. But two, young folks are, they straight up. They see you, you ain't making no bread. You tired, you know what I mean? You're frustrated. And they're like, yo, he went to college, he had a teacher. I don't want to do that shit. Like, it, it, there's, a, there's an element of this that has to be that authentic. And then, you know, also beyond that, they're not good enough models of what it looks like to be fly and cool, successful and owning and knowing yourself and being in a school. And I think there has to be a space where systems provide educators of, of color with the resources, whether, whether they be financial, emotional or even spiritual in the classroom to allow them to be whole so that young folks can see a model of what it looks like to be whole and want to pursue this work of teaching.
0: Very naturally, this disintegration of professional learning experiences encourages an environment where the teaching and learning heritages from educators of color is disintegrated as well. The history and practices upheld by educators of color before and despite racism white supremacy are often left out of context of the history and practices upheld by our nation's public school system. Professor Tatina explains in greater depth what this has looked like from the indigenous educator's perspective.
3: Colonialism is that the premise is based upon possession, ownership, hierarchy, power, dominance, which is in and in a lot of respect, antithetical for indigenous ways and knowing that is seeing that we are connected and related to the land and not being in possession of the land, to be a caretaker of it and not being, not feeling like we own it. And then therefore others don't, that kind of construct that settler colonialism has. But it's also um, this idea of power, dominance, those kinds of frames are also Contrary to Indigenous ways of understanding that we are all together and thinking about our respective relationships with each other, so um, so there are definitely roles um, historically in our stories, in our traditions of particular people or particular families and kinship who have particular roles to play in the larger community, and that we all have those roles. To play, and there isn't a hierarchy or dominance over one or the other. It's an understanding of that we are all in community with each other, that our world can work because of that relationship. So, so, so in terms of learning that idea of settler colonialism in terms of power dominance, um, position of land can is still happening to this day, and is still also occurring in in schooling this idea of dominance and power of knowledge, who, who has the power of the control of the knowledge that is shared in the classroom, um, and this includes the erasure of Indigenous knowledge systems and Indigenous ways in curriculum and teaching and, and so forth, and even the example that we, that we talked about earlier in regards to the history of Christopher Columbus and how that's pervasive in the classroom. And how that is framed around a settler colonial framework that says Christopher Columbus came to America and discovered America and therefore claimed the ownership of that land. And and by doing that, erasing the reality that there were indigenous peoples here living and thriving already. And that, and a lot of our native people say we actually, natives were the ones who discovered Christopher Columbus. So trying to construct this, put the script on on um, that master narrative that educators often have of Christopher Columbus, and so and so that is still happening today.
0: Dr. King and Professor Emden describe how the Brown versus board teacher loss and failed integration attempts impacted the presence of African American education
5: heritages. I think it's fair to say that in the immediate aftermath of Brown in the first couple decades that right after Brown you know and this is well documented we know that in in many communities unfortunately one of the things that districts did was to um either lay off African American principals and teachers or kind of demote them relative to the white principals and white teachers in the in the district and so know there was uh, a loss of a set of insights and expertise and wisdom both for the community and for the education sector as a whole and you know that's that's a part of our educational history in the united states that i think you know we we need to have an honest conversation about Uh, and there are certainly manifestations um and kind of legacy implications of that still with us today you know when we at at trust have done interviews with teachers of color about their experience one of the things we hear very consistently from african american as well as latino teachers is that their perspectives are sometimes devalued that they aren't given the same kinds of leadership opportunities that they see their peers getting, that their uh, expertise in uh, for academic work and their pedagogical skills aren't as valued and recognized as they should be. Well, let's put it all in
4: perspective. Brown versus Board also led to the mass exodus of black teachers from teaching. I mean, you know, you, schools are integrated. They ain't one of the black teachers in there. So, so so there's already like this is like just numerically a wide swath of folks going out and leaving. Couple that with um, the devaluing of the profession. Couple that with larger race, ra- uh, race, racial structures in schools and society at large. You know, you're lost. So if you ask me, like, what was the benefit? And I, I hate to sound like a pessimist. And I hate to sound like as though I don't see any value in... Desegregation. I do see value in desegregation as far as access to resources, as far as, you know, uh, the creation of different opportunities for young folks to be able to engage with people from different, uh, you know, ethnic and racial backgrounds. Like, yeah, but writ large, that shit was a failure. I mean, let's be honest with each other, right? We all know that schools in 2018 are more segregated now than they were back then. And so if you have a, you know, we, we integrated schools, and I always say this, we integrated schools, but we never integrated the curriculum, and we never integrated the pedagogy, And we never integrated the structural approaches to teaching and learning that worked in segregated schools. And so unless we transform our pedagogical practices, we're always gonna inherit what was most problematic about the process of integration. And we have to use that kind of language or desegregation. Um, But we have to use that type of language in order for us to understand why we're set up to fail.
0: One of the educational heritages of African-American teaching and learning was protection from harmful ideas that threaten Black student identity and capacity. Dr. Tanji Reed Marshall, director of P-12 practice at the Education Trust, explains what once was and what is now endangered.
6: If we think about the fact that Black teachers are on the ground having to, one, ensure the intellectual strength, of black children to themselves, right? So, like the whole stereotype threat that Claude Steele brought up in the '80s, black teachers are working to dispel, right? So they're working to dispel that with the students, and then they're working to dispel that myth of black disintellectualism, black fighting against you know white mental constructs. You know that Agbu talked about, you know, the fear of acting white having to then justify being and pushing black children to their white counterparts sometimes, and even to some of their black counterparts. So we sit in these concentric circles and these intersections of proving, disproving, justifying against all of these frameworks that seek to dismantle the ways in which black intellect is always called into question. Like it is always called into question as to whether or not and how, you know, how to teach, how do you teach black children? Like that phrase in and of itself is like the epitome of othering. And it's this constant vein of othering when you use language like that, you know? And so I think that is where you live in the, in the vortex of Black intellectual justification all the time. Um, you know, having to really let Black children know, yes, I'm put in it with you because I know you can. Right. So, you, that, that, and you should do that because that's what teachers do. But then having to live all of that constant justification outside of the classroom particularly in the face of what have become predictive analytics. And so you're living in this constant push against predictive analytics, prediction against bell, crow, bell curve ideology. You know, you're constant living in the wave and sea of that. And that's the, that's the challenge, I think. Um, relationally, professionally, intellectually, having to constantly push and pull against all of that.
0: Sharif El-Meki elaborates on what this knowledge and instructional erasure has looked like for the heritages of African-American teaching and learning and how his organization, the Center for Black Educator Development, is working to reverse this legacy.
7: The one thing about it is the oppressor is consistent. All right, and so we should be able to see the patterns. And sometimes we get in the train of thought, like what well, happens here, but it doesn't happen here. You know, we have black people who think, you know, because it's school, because it's children, because it makes us feel good, the idea of you know public education, a public good, that we think that you know the racism just kind of magically falls off as soon as people enter institutions of higher ed or K to twelve or whatever, right? And so what we have to understand is. If there's an erasure on the contributions of black people in science, in math, in architecture, then why would we not think that it also happens in you know, uh, pedagogy? <laughs> and, and like when, when you think about it, like why wouldn't it not have been erased? When you read uh, James Anderson's book, you know, The Education of Black People in the South, you know, and it talks about that there, you know, in the South it was black people who fought to establish public schools as this public good. The rich white folks didn't want this public education. They wanted people working for them and they had tutors for their own kids. They had private school in their, in their living rooms for their own children. The, the uh, poor white people thought like, you know what? We're an agricultural based society and so we don't need all of that book learning, right? They would mock, oh, you, you're, you're from the Northeast and you're, you know, that, that's not our way of life. We, we're farmers. We work by our hands. We don't need public schooling. It was Black people who said, oh, no. Like, you know, we have to be educated. We have to be able to read. That's the very thing that made us, uh, that they would take our, our limbs or life from learning how to do we are going to do that now in mass and we're gonna do it for our children. We're gonna make sure that this is uh, absolutely crucial, you know, uh, part of our uh, you know, upliftment and they got resistance. right? And so what you saw during all this time was education was so powerful of a notion for us uh, before we were enslaved as well as during enslavement and, and afterwards. But what you find is just like this, the the racism will uh, have you thinking if you're not conscious, if you're not interrogating the media and society and, and the books and the teachers and the professors, that black people have not contributed to this society, right? People, you know, you people say that all the time. And it's not, you know, it's not something new at 45. Thomas Jefferson said it everyone in between them have said it, you know? Um, and it doesn't just happen in political spheres or in police departments, it happened in educational circles, right? The fact that you can go to to a teacher college and learn about Piaget and Dewey and Horace Mann, but don't learn anything about black contributors to the educational space, that you're not learning about the the uh, Mary McLeod Bethunes and the... And, uh, the Lucy Craft uh, Laney's, like if you're not learning about them, if you're not learning about the, uh, the 5,000 community, black community schools that were built uh, during reconstruction, if you're not learning about that and that they were successful, right? There was more, more uh, black people became more literate during those times than any group of people in, in you know, human history, right? And so what was making them successful? How with all the trauma that was going on, all the violence, like as we were building schools, they were burning them down, right? We didn't have capital, right? We have the story, James Anderson tells the story of like, you know, one place they were building a school and this old woman came and she said, I have nothing but this copper penny and it is for the education of black children. That's what they were doing, you know, whether they were donating oxen, whether they were felling trees, to build these log houses, just one room school houses, like that was the commitment and things like that. You don't learn about that because it is so uh, Eurocentric and that is such the default. Whiteness is such the default that if you just go by just what's normal, what's the status quo, that means you are automatically promoting one perspective at the expense of everyone else. And so that's one of the reasons that the Center for Black Educated Development, one of our four pillars, pedagogy is one because we see all these people who say, I'm not prepared to teach black and brown children. I don't know how to teach black and brown children. I don't know how to build relationships with them. Like, you know what? There's a group of folks who've done this really well for a really long time. You know what? And they were black educators. So why is it that they are not that story, those skills, those practices aren't being centered in our teacher colleges, in our in-service programs and everywhere else. And that's why for us, that is absolutely, you know, a uh, crucial part of the work that we do um,
0: at the center. Jeanie Pupa Walker shares how Latinx educational heritages still face disintegration, despite teaching being a profession that can be highly honored in Latinx culture.
1: There are teachers who sometimes I would say Latino teachers who don't speak Spanish, didn't grow up speaking Spanish or speak very poor Spanish or speak a lot of Spanglish, as we said sometimes they're embarrassed by that and they are embarrassed that in front of their students who are Spanish dominant that they can't actually speak Spanish with them. And that can create, uh, I think some interesting tension there internally for that teacher. And, you know, I've always tried to make the point that you don't have to speak Spanish, right. To have a very full Latinx identity, right. You can be, um, you know, you have could have been here for three generations, right. But you still carry with you culture, traditions, certainly uh, an understanding of the story of the community, and so that kind of thing can sometimes you know uh, teachers have to just find their voice as as they can with what they bring to the school to with their with their own story um, and students by and large are extremely accepting of that right but I think um, we have teachers who um still will i think Certainly, I don't see it as much as I did when I was younger, old school teachers who would say you should only speak English at school, should only be speaking English in the hallways. Right. And we still have teachers that say that to kids now uh, that say, don't speak Spanish. You shouldn't be speaking Spanish. You should only be speaking English. And that's really hard. That's a hard one to
0: push back on. This episode was a hard one to make, and I imagine it may have been a hard one for many to listen to. I shared a lot of sad and unfortunate truths about what educators of color experience due to continued and upgraded policies, practices, and patterns of American systems and psychology. With that being said, there was something Dr. Tatum and Professor Emden shared that I thought were important to keep in context.
8: Generally, there is something deeply personal and mission-centric when uh, teachers of color decide that they want to enter the profession. Uh, Many of them are clamoring uh, to go back to their communities or teach students who look like them because of their uh, great experiences. And so I think they go into uh, many of these environments with full intention uh, and goodwill to do something extraordinary, uh, but they become besieged by Um, what can be characterized as barriers that get in the way of them uh, carrying or executing uh, this cultural agenda. For example, mandatory curriculum or other mandatory practices or how kids are positioned uh, in schools, whether it's uh, AP honors, whether it's uh, gifted and, and talented. And so in many ways, the system can serve as a a vacuum that sort of sours uh, the mission that many of the teachers uh, entered. And ideally, we want to have teachers staying in the profession for 10, 15, uh, 20 years. But increasingly, they're exiting early on because of the uh, chasm between my mission-centric Agenda to do something extraordinary uh, for the students and then environment and context that uh, do not always support that uh, taking place. But we're not powerless. If you go in with a strong uh, cultural identity, you will find a way to remain steadfast on behalf of of those uh, students. So I I just want to put that out there. It's not a powerless uh, proposition. The stronger the identity, the stronger the commitment. Uh, the more likelihood that you will move through that uh, sometimes slowing abyss.
4: Educators of color should always remember that they are revolutionaries. That teaching is an act of, of political will that has to be to disrupt systems of oppression. That teaching is not a less than profession. It is the profession that our ancestors, who thought about and created the most powerful structures, the the Cookmans, the Du Boises, Garvey's even, always saw the power of the teacher as the anchor for equity and social justice to happen. And so you cannot just teach in the classroom and teach science or teach art or teach English. You know, your work is bigger than the content. Your work is to teach children and to teach them to know the power of who they are.
0: We can recover, restore, and renew. Additionally, white educators responsible for teaching other people's children should become allies and co-conspirators in the anti-racist work of providing grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. But what resources will be needed? What considerations must be made and or are being made already? What new ideas and collaborations must be formed? And in the spirit of this podcast journey, what must be recovered, restored, and renewed? These experiences of oppression and resistance from educators of color confirm a personal truth that in order to become a change agent for educational equity, we have to know three things. One, we have to know that we are part of an educational system that upholds policies and practices that are historically and inherently racist. Two, we have to know that being in this system means that we are participants in it and are therefore accountable for our contributions. And most importantly, three, using our systemic awareness, coupled with a strong knowledge of self, students, content, context, and instruction, will not only allow us to be non-complicit participants in this system, but change agents from within it. As we go through this history, we will see that this is not easy work, but we will also see how this work is not only possible, necessary. For part 7 of this series, we'll explore how the legacies, past and living, can be authentically integrated into a liberatory model of education. In between now and the next episode, we invite you to open your communities up to discuss this history and its connections to our perceptions of education in America. How does this history make you rethink your current practice? How does this history make you rethink how you interact with both white students and students of color? How do teacher preparation programs tackle systemic racism within their own institutions to promote educators of color without miseducating them? What can you do to hear and amplify voices of color in your local school setting? In this COVID virtual learning era, what does teacher anti-racist activism, resistance, and resilience look like? Reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. I would like to thank the Executive Producers of this episode, Alicia Stewart and Lydia Ramos-Mendoza. I'd like to also thank Professors Sonia Douglas-Horsford, Wayne Au, Victoria Maria McDonald, Alfred Tatum, Chris Emden, Amanda Tachine, Tiffany King, Drs. John B. King and Tangie Reed Marshall, Baba Sharif El-Mekki, School Board Member Jeanie Pupo Walker, and journalist Dana Goldstein for sharing their time, wisdom and embracing their cultural inheritance of having the duty to share knowledge holistically intergenerationally and communally until the next episode i wish you all fair learning journeys peace and progress we hope you enjoyed this podcast which was brought to you by unbounded where we seek to serve educators and students across the country by keeping our work and learning grounded within the intersection of equity instruction content and standards for more about our work Please visit unbounded.org for resources such as our free high-quality curriculum and the Anti-Bias Toolkit, a three-part guide for facilitating conversations about race, bias, and privilege among teachers and leaders. We also encourage you to go deeper into equitable instructional practices by attending one of our new interactive virtual summits. You can also visit unbounded.org forward slash virtual summit to learn more about how you can bring the experience straight to your school, district, organization, or entire state. If you want to expand your content knowledge on the topics we've just explored, we strongly recommend diving into these texts. Latino Education in the United States, a narrated history from 1513 to 2000 by Victoria Maria McDonald. Silent Covenants, Brown v. Board of Education and the Unfulfilled Hopes for Racial Reform by Derrick Bell. Learning in the Burning House, Educational Inequality, Ideology, and Disintegration by Sonia Douglas Horsford. If you listen, we will stay. Why Teachers of Color Leave and How to Disrupt Teacher Turnover by The Education Trust. Our Stories, Our Struggles, Our Strengths. Perspectives and Reflections from Latino Teachers by The Education Trust. We Want to Do More Than Survive. Abolitionist Teaching and the Pursuit of Educational Freedom by Bettina Love. For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the Rest of Y'all Too by Chris Emden. Other People's Children, Cultural Conflict in the Classroom by Lisa Delpit. Teacher Wars, A History of America's Most Embattled Profession by Dana Goldstein, and A Broken Pipeline, Teacher Preparation's Diversity Problem by TNTP. We'll see you next time on the next episode of The Complexion of Teaching and Learning. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the B-side of the Complexion of Teaching and Learning, where we have an in-depth conversation with one educator of color to explore their personal walk, journeys, and reflections. And um, this B-side is a special B-side, not to say that other ones haven't been special, uh, but this is one person who I got the opportunity to learn from in print. Now I get to speak to in person, so it's particularly exciting me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have the author, uh, the scholar, the reader, and the leader, Dr.
8: Alfred Tatum. How you doing, sir? Hey, I'm feeling great. Thanks for having me, Brandon.
0: No problem. It's nothing short of an uh, honor. As you see, I'm already like <laughs> nervous about this because you—I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, you were one of the few mirrors I got to see as I was becoming a English language arts teacher for middle school and a high school students. So thank you very much. And in, in my increasing, my familiarity with you as a person and how you got into this work, I read that you read five pounds of books a month. <laughs> What's the story behind that commitment and what it has it revealed to you about your path as a black educator
8: in America? You know, I don't know how this happened, but I was 11 years old in the uh, sixth grade and I just gave myself this uh, personal uh, challenge, uh, five pounds of books per month. And at that time I just uh, was trying to devour all the children's literature that existed and I fell in love with words like labyrinth and deciduous trees. I could name trees in different ways. It just wasn't a tree anymore. And I said it's something beautiful about language and knowledge. So that was just uh, how it emerged, but it became deeper when I read Dick Gregory's novel, Nigger. I found that on a library bookshelf, it said over 1 million copies sold. I think the book was about, you know, dollar and 50 cents at the time. I said, this man made a million dollars off this book, a little more than a million. And so I read this text and then that sent me on a different trajectory. So it wasn't just about the aesthetics of reading, It was about becoming smart and developing as a human being and developing as a black man uh, in in this uh, nation. And I just fell in love, it became uh, contagious. And it was that five pounds of reading that actually led me into education. I was a math major, a finance major, wanted to make a lot of money, but then I read an article. And so I'm pleased to hear that I served as a mirror in some way, but I read an article that began to chronicle the academic underperformance of black boys and I changed my major uh, that week. So reading not only uh, saved my life, it also served my life. And now it allows me to give back to others. So five pounds is the magical formula. Mm. And
0: uh, ever since I uh, read that, I was like, I'm gonna try that. And it's, it's it's not for the weak of heart. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's not even if even if you really love soaking in knowledge and you are a proficient reader, that is not for the weak of heart. Because I also think like, all right, I'm reading this paper. Uh-huh. Is this counting the five pounds, or does it have to be like books? So, <laughs> I've I'm, I'm, started my own journey uh, not not too long ago. So we'll see what kind of fruit that produces. It was interesting to hear you um, talk about your uh, growth as a reader and how it changed your trajectory in life. And just aligned with so many things you've said before about African-American uh, education traditions in terms of it being mission oriented, where you saw its worth as, as a profession um, and as a, as a lifestyle and how it could be used to serve so many kids like you. And you went straight into that, um, which, you know, I, I was going to say, which is a totally different lifestyle from where you were, but it wasn't. And that goes back to like this intersectionality or this holism that I feel like is common in, in African and, 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 and indigenous and Latino kind of uh, epistemologies or ways of knowing, right, where everything is connected, where your love for literacy led you into math and, and business, but it still had this connection mm-hmm. with service and teaching other folks to kind of grow into their own. So a lot of connections there, a lot of meaningful connections there for me. And, you know, I noticed that in your literacy uh, journey, you talked about learning things about plants, which ties well into the next thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of like land, right? You've kind of captured this clear relationship between land, literacy and labor, right? How do all three of those things simultaneously serve the purpose of liberation of black and brown students? And how can classroom educators kind of leverage that truth?
8: Yeah, I'll start here. Uh, My reading early on gave me a race man orientation. Uh, These were men who wanted to uplift the race. And many of our earlier leaders came from the South. So you would read Booker T. Washington's Up From uh, Slavery. And it was always something about uh, soil as a sense of protection and empowerment. Mildred Taylor uh, wrote, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. I think it was in the early 1970s. Um, don't know when I first came across Classic. that. Yeah. Came across that text. And it was about this Logan family. And they were just like, well, you got the land, you have the power, you have literacy. And those were the things that were denied to us as a people. Let's deny them literacy. Let's deny them land. And let's deny them Uh, Power. And it's just a reconnection between something that is so physical and so practical that we could uh, put our hands on it. And then when you read about the Black Reconstruction Area, 40 acres and a mule, we really don't need 40 acres and a mule anymore. We need one acre and a tool because you can sustain yourself off of one acre of land. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, other people may be upset that I dismissed the other 39 acres. But that was at the time. One acre and a two goes a, a long way. And so for me, it's uh, how do you become self-sustaining, self-empowering, protect your family, give them a, a respite to grow and flourish. And it's just a sense of um, not just empowerment, but, but dignity uh, across your own space. And so that's why I always talk about literacy uh, and land, our, our power, and they usually coexist for those who move in that particular direction. And it doesn't hurt that I like to eat fresh vegetables.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I myself have been trying to be more agricultural <laughs> over the past few years. In fact, when we were living in an apartment complex, <laughs> I was growing some tomatoes out in the front of it. Yeah. Uh, um it, it's you know, just baby steps into into uh, actually like trying to experiment with what my ancestors did before they had the free freedom yeah. to read, right? Like it's, it's, it's interesting to see how there's one set, there was one set of knowledge that was forbidden and taken away from us. Cause obviously we, we were, had literacy uh, prior to slavery and different literacies during slavery, but in terms mm-hmm. of uh, reading and writing the language of where we are, we are forbidden, right? So th- we, we had those prohibitions but we had a certain net knowledge around the land. Right? Right, um, right. And, and, you know, fast forward to now, and you can only fast forward one or two generations. Like my grandfather had that knowledge. Yeah. Right. But then, you know, they moved up to uh, Harlem in the Bronx and then my mother moved to Rochester, New York. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, years later, I have all this literacy privilege. Right. But yeah. I, I don't know nothing about the soil. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been yeah. trying to, you know, uh, 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 tap back in and, you know, with books too, like Farming While Black that came out not too long ago, Mm -hmm. that's helped me. Um, And again, I need to be literate (laughs) to to understand what that book is talking about, Um, especially since, you know, it's very specialized information, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of things, it was like, what what, what do they mean, pH levels? Like, what do they mean? Like, you know, like, it's making all these things relevant um, and exercising my uh, literacy skills as well. And again, it taps back into that whole holism, that intersectional
8: yeah. kind of
0: application uh, uh, for, for uh, literacy, which makes me think, like in the classroom situation, as you are, let's say, you're reading a book like *Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry*, right? Um, what do you, what could possibly be happening with the science teacher around uh, agrarian science, right, plant science, as you're reading that book um, with these with these uh, folks who are um, you know, agriculturalists, so.
8: Um, yeah, I was, actually, I was, I was late coming to it. I, in high school, we had a uh, greenhouse and um, a horticultural classroom. And it was a black male teacher. He, he approached me, he says, uh, uh, Tatum, have you thought about joining this horticulture class? I said, hoda who? I didn't know what horticulture was at the time. And so I become the president of the horticultural uh, club but I let it go, but what really got me it, it wasn't the reading. I put that seed in the soil, I let the water and sun do its work, and uh, I started with lettuce and it and lettuce just grew, and I went out there and tasted how fresh it was, and then I worked backwards trying to figure out, okay, well, you know let me now figure out how to uh, work with the soil. So playing in the dirt came first for me, and then reading followed and so. Once my corn crop grew one year, didn't grow the next year, I said I had to become smart about this. So I I often tell young people, uh, the next revolution uh, is in the dirt. If you learn how to work the dirt, uh, you will never starve. And Mm. you may be in good physical shape and condition.
0: Yeah. And And there's a reason why like all that to your point, like around like land, there's a reason why all that land was taken from us like after reconstruction up to now, like, because yeah. I know you posted on Twitter, uh, farmers who, you know, were, were suing, I believe, Monsanto. Yes, yes. Um, uh, around, you know, land rights, seed rights. And, and there's just such an interplay. And again, it goes back to literacy as a means to an end, right? And I also find a powerful metaphor in the idea of like planting and education,
5: yes, right? Yes, like yes,
0: horticulture yes. And, and, and education. And to kind of run with that metaphor, there is a uh, agricultural framework that I saw that you are developing regarding like eight focal areas in which Black males develop literacies. Yes. What will it take for these focus areas to be practiced on a district wide level? Like seeing these districts basically being like big plots of land, right? And we know the terrain of these lands. There's fertile soil here. There's stony ground here. There's these weather norms that you know, are sporadic. There's these animals that may try to get into the crop, right? Like, what will it take for these eight focal areas to really get a good opportunity to grow in this terrain and in district uh, level
8: terrains? Uh, First of all, I love how you put that, uh, Brandon. I think that was the most gorgeous framing about I've ever heard thinking about school districts as these large literacy or garden plots. Uh, I, I don't think anyone, uh, ho- hopefully you you can you uh, write a piece on that. I mean, if, if not, uh, I'm only giving you two weeks. <laughs> okay. writing, you're going to see this article on this gorgeous uh, land plot. But, 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 but I like that. Uh, and, and, and so the, the point with these eight, eight, eight focal areas, the literacy development of Black boys, we become very good at you know describing uh, their literacy shortcomings when I look at uh, the literature, or we talk about uh, culture responsive pedagogy, or we talk about uh, other dimensions that penetrate um, the discourse, thinking about their reading identities or nurturing their reading identities. But what's missing in that and how we really have to think about nourishing, uh, I wrote a piece years ago called The Nesting Ground, and how schools and classrooms must feel like this nesting ground But what's really missing from that eight focal areas is do we have a strong enough research architecture that's giving us direction for moving uh, black boys to advanced levels of reading and writing? And we don't have that because the research that we're paying attention to is um, so thin. Most research studies have less than 20 black male participants but we're making these huge leaps to say, this is what we need to do uh, for black males. And going back to the land in the South, we have very few research studies pre-K through 12 that focuses on black boys uh, in the South. And there are very few black male reading researchers. You don't have to be a black male reading researcher to study that literacy development, but there seems to be a different type of connection. Most of this research is now being conducted by Black women uh, in society. And so we're gonna have a long, difficult road to change the literacy outcomes in this nation for our Black boys if research is not part of that rich uh, literacy uh, soil. At some point, we're, we're gonna need to develop a national council on the reading achievement of Black males who's responsible for nurturing this uh, conversation, or we're gonna to have to create a center for the reading, research and reading achievement of black boys. Uh, I'm absolutely surprised what I found, <clears throat> less than five articles per year, and this is across all areas of research for black males, are being published since 1999. So uh, we have less than six articles from 1999 to 2020 that focuses on this. We have more policy reports than research reports and there's no state of emergency, so we have things we pay attention to, but we have to build that research uh, architecture.
0: That's startling, um, especially when I uh, you know hear all the time. You know, whenever you're doing research uh, around reading and literacy, you're always hearing about the National Reading Panel, right? The National Reading Panel, yep. um, and it's, it's very key and critical around you know understanding certain facts around literacy instruction in and. In America, but to your point, there, there's never been like this, this an equivalent for Black males learning how to read, which is, is really startling because there's always this, this gap gazing. To your point, there's this gap gazing around who can read, who can't, who's achieving, who can't, but the actual in-depth research around it and the best practices to see that it's so limited each year is kind of scary. But then it also connects back to this other curiosity I had, where if you're not being, there's not enough research taking place, there's not enough good practice taking place. And if there's not good enough practice taking place, that may have an impact on black and brown students wanting to become teachers in America. So what, what, what role do you personally believe limited access to like quality literacy instruction has on black and brown students wanting to become teachers in, in, in America?
8: I think it's quite significant. If you have great experiences in a place, you may want to return to that place. If you have hostile experiences in a place or it felt like an unwelcomed environment to you, uh, you may not want to return to that place. So if we have great experiences in schools from great educators who positively impacted our lives then we may want to go back into that uh, particular. And so we began to recruit teachers as early as kindergarten and in third grade and in eighth grade. You know, I remember very distinctly having this extraordinary black male eighth grade teacher. And I didn't realize the impact he had on me until I decided to enter uh, the profession but I never saw myself in that particular uh, light. Now, I may have never uh, wandered into the College of Education if I had an awful educational experience uh, in schools. Fortunately, I had great teachers who provided great instruction, who held the highest expectations, who knew me. I remember my eighth grade teacher saying, boy, I know your mama drink out of jelly jars, you know? He let me know that, and we were drinking out of jelly jars. You didn't go out and buy glasses from Walmart or Target. It didn't exist. You <laughs> care off the label. And, but yep. somehow that, that, that stood with me. So we were you know, citing the preamble to the Constitution, and then he's talking about my mama drinking out of jelly jars. I mean, he wasn't talking to me directly, but he was talking to me.
0: Right, and indeed. I said,
8: there's not, it's something educationally empowering about teaching, but there's something deeply humanistic about uh, teaching as well, too. And I don't I think if you don't have those rich uh, experiences very uh, academic uh, and cultural, it may serve as a deterrent to going back uh, into the uh, profession. So if you're a black male teacher or a Latino or a man teacher or a woman, make sure they have great experiences and that's how you preserve the profession uh, moving forward. You once
0: said that a leveled text produced a oh, leveled yeah. life right um, yeah. And for those who are not Privy to what we're referring to, referring to the concept of having uh, books that were are created for certain reading levels and students being encouraged to read explicitly or typically those books and not necessarily be engaging books underneath that designated reading level or over it, right? So, uh, Doctor Alfred Tatum's claim is level text producer, a leveled life. How how would you explain this to an educator? of color or not of color, who feels so accustomed to the belief that providing literature according to their reported, to a student's reported reading level helps black and brown students. And it's not a detriment.
8: Yeah, I mean, there's some context to this. And in in reading assessment, they talk about the independent reading level, the instructional reading level, and the frustration uh, level. Uh, And that's only when kids read uh, independently But what happened and what was authorized in schools, they were saying that we need to place or have kids read text during the instructional time that doesn't frustrate them or does not cause harm. And so we started leveling text based on level of difficulty or uh, modifying uh, text. But what happened if you were a struggling reader you could have these leveled or lower level text in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. And even in the community colleges where they have remedial reading courses, you still have this leveled experience. And so what I found out, I said, this leveling starts, but it never stops. And so you're not only leveling text, you're leveling lives. And so now you are pinching a kid's literacy experience during instruction that has an adverse or can have an adverse impact as they never find the pathway to reading and writing at advanced levels. Now, sorely, Brandon, this was used as a cultural salve uh, because we saw more students of color reading these level texts, just based on where they were positioned in classrooms. If you were in a remedial class or a lower level reading class, that's where you had the texts and disproportionately those were black and Latino students across uh, school districts. So it was in the wide open, it wasn't hidden. This was a national movement, leveling texts. And so what it suggested was, we are going to have students of color across this nation reading level text. And as a result of this, they will never be placed at an academic advantage. Now, if someone had a conspiracy to say, well, how do you destroy the literacy lives of students in America? We will just go in, give them lower reading text. We'll say it publicly as if it's a good thing And then we have our communities digest this pill. We were digesting a pill of academic failure, of academic inferiority. And we began to see the outcomes, lower college going rates, being erased from the academic disciplines, not experiencing the advanced placement uh, courses. This was a grand conspiracy in the wide open and I said, we must make it very clear that leveled texts lead to leveled lives.
0: Dr. Tatum, um, <laughs> you have this uh, unique ability to be so concise and still hit very deep. <laughs> uh, and and, and, and I, I'm very uh, humbled by that and, and honored to uh, be exposed to that and be able to have other folks uh, exposed to that to help with their own education uh, journeys, um, because they are uh, dicey terrains. And we have to figure out how to uh, (laughs) do the best farming with the plot we have and the plots we have, right? So if I can, I want to ask you one more question that I've asked everybody else. It's a quick question, um, and then we'll close out. Who is your favorite educator in person, somebody who you personally know? And who's your favorite educator in print? like somebody who published something that re or published things that have regularly transformed and reformed your thinking as an educator.
8: Yeah, it was my uh, sixth grade teacher. And her whole focus was vocabulary development. She didn't care if our parents' legs were too short or our parents' income level. She said, you guys can learn the heaviest words in the world. She called them, uh, these are called sesquipedalians and they were mm-hmm. called sesquips. And so this whole year, man, uh, these words opened up an entirely new intellectual uh, vista. Now, an educator who influenced me as a student teacher is a gentleman by the name of Carl Boyd. Uh, very few people know who Carl uh, Boyd is. He wrote this book called Teach with Love. Now, I had strong disciplinarians growing up. Uh, In middle school, I thought I was going to have to be a strong disciplinarian. I wasn't going to smile for the first three months. They tell you all this stuff in in, in your teacher uh, training, uh, teacher preparation programs. But I read this book, and um, it, it says love is one of the most powerful, radical forces. And if I said, if I can go in and teach with love, I can make it very difficult for kids to fail in my presence. And I just happened to fall or read Carl Boyd's book, uh, Teach With Love, the same time I started reading Dr. King's book, Strength to Love. And uh, love is a very powerful force. Uh, When you go in there with a love force, it's hard to beat that uh, at any given moment. So I don't know if Carl Boyd is still alive. I never shared that with him uh, publicly, but he was one of the most profound educators that had a significant impact on my life.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And you just uh, added to my five pounds <laughs> before 2020. I'll add that to my December five pound pile for sure. Uh, Dr. Tatum, uh, I just want to thank you again um, and all our other guests on the A side. Thank you again for your wisdom and, and following through with your missions. And I just want to remind everyone that justice is found in the details of teaching and learning. Peace and progress.
8: Hey, thanks, like Brandon.